Please turn with me to James chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll continue our study of James this morning. Before we do, I just want to give you a couple of uh, pieces of information. We did launch our new website this last week. It's um, really good. You know, got a couple bugs in it here and there, but it's really fantastic. Uh, great resources. Uh, the sermons are on the website. You can get on. Gary Peterson usually has those loaded uh, a lot of times by Sunday evening or um, by Monday. And uh, Blake and I are writing study questions that go along with this. So Monday afternoon, Monday evening, we will have questions based upon what we've been talking about. Um, we also have a full study guide, inductive Bible study guide for James, if you want to get on, in, uh, the, on the website and download that. Uh, for just the questions, you could use that personally, individually, or if you're doing a small group, uh, our home church groups, or some of them are using our James study. You can uh, just type in James question up on the search box, and you can get that. The other thing is, I'm trying to use my Facebook account, my Twitter account a little bit more for, for ministry stuff. So if you follow me, I won't tell you what I had for breakfast you know, on Twitter. I'm not going to tweet that. Uh, but I have, like with Facebook this last week, I threw out some questions based upon the upcoming sermon, trying to do some follow-up questions. Um, if I run, run across a good video or an article or something like that. Um, so friend me. I, I like friends. If you want to friend me, that's good. If you don't, that's fine. It won't hurt my feelings. I have friends. I'm okay. Um, let's get into James. We're going to read James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are scattered or dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This morning we're going to talk about what is probably for most of us like our least favorite topic to study. We're going to talk about trials. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been like, you know, having a quiet time and you come to James, go, oh, it's time to read James. Haven't done that in a while. You start reading James and it says, oh, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. You go, uh-oh. <laughs> I guess God's going to bring trials into my life and he's preparing me and that's why I just happened to flip open to James. Quick, find a passage on blessing, right? <laughs> you ever do that? <laughs> Couldn't we just, could we just skip that part and talk about all the wonderful gifts and stuff that God gives us? Well, James doesn't let us do that. He, he really dives right in. If you think of what, about the way this book starts, he basically says, hi, I'm James. Let's talk about trials, right? James, a bondservant, greetings, boom. And he gets right into it, right into a really significant and deep and challenging issue that we face in our lives. So as we begin, what I'd like to do is just make a few observations to begin with about his introduction. He says, when you encounter various trials, what does he mean? What's he talking about? When you think of trials, what do you think of? The word can actually have two meanings that are pretty different. This word in Greek can can mean uh, temptations, that is, uh, trials that come from inside of you in which you are tempted to sin. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, he's going to talk about trial in that sense, the temptation internally. Uh, Here, he's not talking about that. He's talking about external hardships that test us. Okay, things that come upon us from outside, not the internal temptation, but the external pressures and tests that come upon us in our lives. For his audience, in particular, there were two tests or trials they were facing. One was poverty. It's a group of people who didn't have much. And the second was oppression by the rich and powerful. Okay, that was their particular struggle. But James doesn't want to limit the conversation to that, so he says various trials. That is, uh, trials that can be 
in any shape, size, color, or form. That word can actually be translated uh, multicolored or multifaceted. Okay, so not just poverty and oppression like they're facing, but it could be sickness, it could be disease, it could be the loss of a job, it could be failing a test, it could be losing a loved one, it could be anything. James says, what I want to do as we begin... Later I'll talk about specifics, but right now I want to lay out principles that apply to any and every hardship that you could face in life. Third observation, James says when, not if. Okay. James says when you encounter trials that come in all types, from outside of you, whether you brought it on yourself or whether others pushed it upon you, when this happens, and it will, when, not if. In other words, trials are inevitable. Each and every person that is sitting here has faced a trial, has struggled. Maybe you're sitting there and you say to yourself, well, you know, actually, no, uh, you know, so far my life has been really smooth. I would just say to you, buckle up, okay? Uh, It's been said that every person is either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go into a trial, And when we're in the midst of them, we say to ourselves, why me? Okay, why me, God? Why me? Why am I struggling with this? Or why is my spouse struggling? Or why is my child struggling? Why me? And why not that other person? Look how easy their life is. I can tell you from um, the, the job that I have, every life has a hard story. Every life has a hard story. I get to hear a lot of those stories. And so I know that the people sitting around you have difficult things in their lives. If you scratch just below the surface, if you just stop and listen for just a minute, you will discover that each and every person has gone through or is going through really deep waters. Trials are inevitable. They come upon each and every person. James describes them like this is when you encounter, uh, literally, that is to fall into something unexpectedly. Hey, this word is used uh, by Jesus when he tells the parable. Remember the man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it says he fell in among thieves. He wasn't looking for thieves, right? He wasn't provoking thieves. He's just going about his business. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, conducting business, and he gets ambushed. And James says, this is how trials come upon you. They ambush you, and they ambush absolutely every person. Absolutely every person. But they're not God's fault. God is not the cause of evil and suffering and hardship in the world. They are not God's fault. Let's go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. God created. And remember, each day that God created, he would stop and he would look and he would say, it is good. It is good. It is good. The beasts in the field, that's good. Birds in the sky, that's good. The fish are swimming in the sea, that's good. The plants on land, that's good. I creates a man and a woman, he says, wow, that's very good. It's all good. And then Satan slipped into the garden and he whispered in Eve's ear and she believed his lie and she turned to his husband and her husband and he followed her and sin entered into the world and then hardship into God's perfect creation. God is not the cause of sin. But you remember, if you move from Genesis 3 all the way to about Revelation chapter 19, 20, that in the end, God sets all things right again. And we move back to a place that's much more similar to the garden where there is no sorrow or tear or hardship or trial ever. 
But right now we live between Genesis 3 and Revelation chapter 20. Okay, Each and every person. And you know what? God doesn't rescue Christians from what the rest of the world faces. Just doesn't happen. Sometimes I think, wouldn't that be wonderful? You trust Christ and, oh man, my disease is gone. Right? No, no more hardship. I'll never fail a test and I'll get a date every night that I want to date. I mean, just all these wonderful things. I do actually get a date every night because I'm married. So, you know, he solved that one for me. But for the rest of you students, you're a Christian and all hardship goes away. That's not how it works. God doesn't rescue us from all that the world faces. We live in a broken and a fallen world. And so every single one of us will fall unexpectedly into hard circumstances of of all different kinds, trials that will test us. Trials that will test us. And what James is saying is you can't control all of your circumstances. You may be able to stop making certain foolish choices that bring bad things upon yourself, but you can't control all hardships. You can't control everything that you fall into in this life. But, James says, you can control your response. That is the one thing you can control. You can choose how you will respond to the trials. Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 2. James says, Consider it, or count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into all kinds of trials. Literally, James actually says, all joy, entire joy, complete joy, consider it. The verb actually comes second. He starts out this paragraph, his first imperative comes second. He says, all joy. Now that requires, I think, a little bit of explanation. Biblical joy is not the same as happiness. James isn't saying, hey, when things stink, be happy. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, ignore the fact that you're in really hard circumstances and be happy. That's not, that's not possible. He's, he's not saying either that happiness is bad. Happiness is good. I like happiness. I prefer happiness to sadness. I, I like to have good circumstances, and I like the feeling that I get from those good circumstances. That's what happiness is. James is actually talking about something different. He's talking about joy, which is much more profound, which we can actually possess even when we are in hard circumstances. I borrowed a couple of ideas from Kay Warren. She had a definition of joy that included this. She said it's a settled assurance, a quiet confidence, a determined choice. It's a determined choice. I think she's picking up on Paul's words here in 1 Thessalonians where he uses the verb form and he says, rejoice always. It's a command. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Those are all imperatives. Meaning that as a creature made in the image of God, even when you're going through hard circumstances, you can still rejoice. You can obey that command. And these things are tied together. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything. Not not in a sense for everything. Not pretending that bad things are good. But in the midst of everything. Looking through your circumstances. And trusting God. Looking through the trial. And saying, I have a settled confidence that God is good. Looking through the trial and trusting the character of God. That I know he's good because as I look through my trial, I see the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And sometimes when you're in the midst of a trial, that is the only thing that you can reach out and cling to. But God is good. Why? Because he gave Jesus. And because he gave Jesus, he will one day set all things right and there will not be trials someday. Because he gave Jesus, my debt of sin can be completely removed forever and I can have a life that lasts forever with God. So that even if I... I'm in the midst of unpleasant things now. I can look through those, not pretending they don't exist, not pretending that, they're, that I really enjoy them and that I'm happy, but I look through the trial and I trust the character of God. James says, all joy. Count it. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, that is impossible to do. That just seems like in a sense, absolutely ridiculous advice. How can I trust God if I don't know God? And so I would encourage you this morning, if you have not reached out and clung to Jesus Christ, and God, right now life is falling down around me, or I'm just coming out of something that's really difficult, or I'm seeing something on the horizon that's going to be really hard, but I know that you hold my eternity in your hands. I trust Jesus. I trust him. Thank you for sending him to die for my sins and giving me life that lasts forever. I trust Jesus. When you make that decision, God begins to change your heart and your mind, give you a capacity to look through even the most difficult circumstances and know God will set all things right. And so James says, consider it all joy. I would define joy then like this. Joy is a choice to delight in God's goodness even when life is falling apart. Joy is a choice that has an object, and the object is the character of God. So what does it mean to consider it? The word means this. It's a choice to regard something to be true, even when, or I would say especially when, it doesn't feel true. That's what it means to consider. It's a choice to regard something to be true, even when it doesn't feel true, especially when it doesn't feel true. Interesting biblical illustration, Hebrews chapter 11. The writer says, By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, what's the proper time of life? Well, it's something before age 90, right? And and Sarah was told at 90 that she was going to have a child. Remember her first response? She laughed. She laughed. She laughed at the messenger. She was basically laughing at God. You've got to be kidding me. Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, apparently she moved from that place of laughter to considering the character of God. And she looked through her personal circumstances. She didn't pretend she wasn't 90. But she looked past the fact that she was 90 to the power and the goodness of God. And she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And thus, she received the ability to conceive even when she was 90. Yeah, I don't have to say to you, consider that this room is full. Because it's obvious. It's true. You can see it. Consider that we have bad parking at Grace Bible Church Anderson. You don't have to consider that. It's just a fact. It's obvious. You can't miss it. But to consider your trials as joy, you know, that's supernatural. That requires, I would say, uh, in a sense, divinely inspired imagination where I'm actually able to take my eyes for a moment off of my suffering or my trial or my hardship and look through it and past it and around it without ignoring it and say, God is good and I know he's good because I've seen Jesus. Because I've seen Jesus. Consider it all joy.
2 Corinthians 6, Paul makes a really interesting statement. He says, we are as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Uh, This is a verse that I, I frequently use as I'm preaching a funeral or a memorial service. At so many memorial services that I've been in, there, there are obviously tears, but the crazy thing is there's often a lot of laughter. Have you ever been at a memorial service or a funeral where people are laughing, where they're telling stories? You know? And they're laughing, 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 and then they're crying. And then they're laughing again, and then they're crying, and they're moving back and forth, and it's just, a, it's just this crazy mix of emotions that are just intertwined with one another. And Paul says, you know, sorrow and joy are not antithetical to one another. The opposite, actually, of joy is, is bitterness and anger. Okay? I can be rejoicing and sorrowful. At a funeral, I am sorrowful because that person is gone, and they won't be with me, and I want them with me. But I'm joyful because they live so well and we have wonderful memories and I know that they are in, in, in God's presence and they will always be and I will see them again and so I can rejoice and I can celebrate all of this past history even when my heart's breaking and I'm sorrowful and I can move back and forth between these things and be sorrowful and rejoicing because sorrow and, and joy are not, they're not antithetical to one another. It's, it's joy and bitterness. When, when I face a trial, I make a choice. Will I embrace that trial with joy and I will, will I look through it and say, I know God is good because he gave me Jesus and I will choose to trust him or will I get angry and frustrated and bitter at him and say, God, why me? Why not him? Why not her? James says, you can choose. When you're faced with a trial, you will choose to rejoice in the Lord and delight in his goodness or to become angry and bitter at the Lord. And those small choices will determine who you become as a person. They will determine your character in life. I once read, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Now, there may be other roots of sin, but I thought that's a, that's a really good phrase. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Remember, this is what tripped up Eve in the garden. Satan came and said, well, sure, God gave you lots of trees, but he didn't give you that tree. And that's the tree you really want, and that's the tree you really need. And if God was good, he'd give you that tree. The reason he doesn't give you that tree is he doesn't want you to become like him. God is not good. You can't trust him. And she believed that lie. And Adam believed with her. And they brought suffering into the world. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. So James says, make a choice. Choose to see God's purposes. Two primary purposes that we have trials in our lives. The first is to build character now. Second is to bring reward later. Next week we will talk in verses 9 through 12 about a specific trial that these people were facing in their day. And James will motivate them with future reward. Right now, he's talking simply about the character that we receive now. And notice, what we're talking about is God's purposes in trial, not the reason for your trial. Okay, Hang with me. I can't tell you the reason for any trial you've gone through in life. In other words, I can't connect the dots and say, here's the cause, here's the effect, here's exactly what God was trying to accomplish, so forth. I can't tell you reasons for trials. I'm not, I'm not the oldest and wisest person in this room. Uh, there are many who have lived longer and are wiser than me. I've just lived 47 years. But in my short time on earth, I've discovered that, that rarely does God tell me the reason 
just doesn't happen. Sometimes I can go through it and I look back and I go, okay, I see a few of the reasons. And maybe I'm right and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing it. But it seems to me that now I can start to package some reasons. But a lot of times in this life, God doesn't tell us the reason. So if you're going through a trial and you're searching for the reason, I'm just telling you, sometimes you're just not going to find that. Or if you have a friend that's going through a trial, don't tell them the reason because you don't know. (laughs) You don't. You're just making it up. But what James does say is he says, I can tell you purposes for trials. I can tell you whether you brought it on yourself or somebody brought it into your life. No matter what the reason, no matter what kind of trial it is, God can take bad circumstances and he can create something wonderful from it. That's the wonder and beauty of the power and sovereignty of God. He can take the worst things that happen in your life and he can create beauty in your life because he can create character. Character that lasts forever. How does that work? Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 2. All joy, consider it, my brethren, when you fall into all kinds of different trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says first, trials refine our faith. That word for testing uh, brings up an illusion. The imagery is that of the goldsmith who is taking the gold and he's heating it up until it's melted. And then he's scraping off the impurities, the dross. And then he heats it up again and he scrapes off more of the dross. And he continues that process until he can look down and he can see a perfect reflection of himself in the gold. The the testing or the refining of your faith. That's what God does. And all that, that mess and stuff inside of us, It doesn't get perfectly scraped away until we're in the presence of God. And so for all of our lives, God's heating up and he's scraping and he's heating up and he's scraping because he is testing and refining and purifying our trust in him. Faith is like, it's like a muscle. And if it's unused, it atrophies. And so God stretches it and he tears it and he allows circumstances in our lives that will cause it to become stronger. When I left uh, Texas A&M University, I was not married. I graduated, but I wasn't married. I didn't actually get married until I was almost 31 years old. You know, for you freshmen, you're like, well, whatever, you're not really thinking about that. But for your upperclassmen, you're going, oh, God, not me, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's great to get a BS or a BA or an MS or an MA. Man, you even leave with a PhD, but you really want to leave with an MR or an MRS, right? That's why you're here, I know. You know, and church happens on Sunday, so you came. But that's the goal. That's the objective. And sovereignty of God's wonderful, but you don't want to leave here because your odds go down, right? You got fifty thousand people now, and lots of Christians here on campus, and you might get stuck like in Snook or something. And man, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, right? So I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and wondering, God, what are you doing? And I would have flashes, moments of insight when I'd realize God is teaching me. Endurance. God is teaching me endurance. James says trials or a tested faith produces endurance. To endure means literally to to remain under. To remain under. It was used of a soldier who kept fighting even when he was tired and thirsty and wounded. He kept pressing on. After Tristy and I got married, we decided, well, we'll wait three or four years, and then we'll start having kids. 
But then after we got married, we thought, no, we're, we're ready to have kids. We've been married a year. And God said, no, no. As we like to say, God said no 47 times. Okay, for, for four years. We waited, and I will tell you, there were a lot of tears. It was a hard, hard trial. It was a struggle, and God was teaching us endurance to, to bear up, to remain under. He was pressing and squeezing and stretching our faith so that we would be able to look through this trial and say, no, God, we know you, and we know that you are good. Even when we are suffering, even when it feels like life is falling apart, we're not giving, getting what we most want and long for, we trust you. We trust you. When God rescued Israel from Egypt and slavery to bring them to the promised land, the pathway went through desert. Okay? From slavery to promised land, they went through desert, and God was allowing them to be tested. They were dirty and hot and tired and hungry and thirsty. And God was testing them. Will you remain under this trial? Will you stay with me, or will you want to go back to Egypt? And you know the story. Say, let's get other leaders. Let's get another God. Let's get back to slavery. When they're in the wilderness, God was trying them and testing them. Would they stay with him? And would they accept his provision? Even when they were tired and hungry and thirsty, would they reach out and say, God, we know you. We trust you. You're not trying to kill us. We need water. We need food. And would they then thank him for what he gave? Or would they become bitter and grumble and whine and complain? Well, you know the story. And so, after failing the test and choosing bitterness instead of joy, they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. They wandered around. James is saying, when you face a trial and you respond to it by looking through it and trusting God and embracing joy, God can refine your character. Endurance, he says, produces maturity. Let's read that again. He says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus used this, this same word for perfect in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Therefore you are to be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus' point is not that God the Father is sinless. That's true, and I know that. Don't worry. Uh, God the Father is perfect in the sense that he's sinless, but that's not Jesus' point. His point here is that God the Father is, is whole. He's complete. He's lacking in nothing. God has no, no need. Okay? He, is, he is entire. Matthew uh, is quoting Jesus, who's using a Hebrew idiom, and James is using the same Hebrew idiom. Uh, it comes from the word shalom. We normally translate it peace, but what it means is wholeness. What it means is wholeness. So James says, let endurance have its perfect end or perfect work in your life so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, so that you may be whole. That's what maturity is. Interesting illustration of this in the Old Testament. First Chronicles chapter 28. David is uh, exhorting and commissioning his son, Solomon. He says, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. And serve him with a shalom heart. Okay? The heart that's complete, 
Undivided in its devotion to God. Serve him with a whole heart, a shalom heart, and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and he understands every intent of the thoughts. And what does God want from us more than anything? That we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We would give him a whole heart. Not a divided heart. Not loving the world and then also trying to love God. Remember the story of Solomon? How did it end? We're told in 1 Kings chapter 11. When Solomon was old... His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not shalom. It wasn't whole in its devotion to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. You know, David wasn't, wasn't perfect. David had sin. But fundamentally, David had a heart that was so completely given to God. And James says, this is what trials can do, is God allows us to be squeezed by circumstances, and we choose to respond in joy He makes our hearts wholly his. So how do we get there? You may be saying, you know, uh, I I would like to respond in joy, but I'm having a really hard time with that. How do I go there? How do I get there? Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be whole, complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says, if you want to respond as God would have you respond and see God shape and mold your character so that you're whole and complete, then just ask God for wisdom or ask God for God's perspective. Now, we'll talk a lot more about wisdom in the upcoming weeks, but simply it is applied knowledge. Okay? And in this particular case, it is living according to God's true and eternal perspective. That is, I choose to see things as God says they are, even if they don't feel that way. And I choose to act accordingly. That is not just information about God, but I apply that information in my active trust of God. And I look through this trial and I see the goodness and faithfulness of God. James says, ask. Just ask. Ask for God's perspective on what you're going through. Any of you ever have a hard time asking for advice? I do. I have a hard time asking for advice. Men, we're notorious. We, we don't want to ask directions, that's for sure, right? I don't want that kind of advice. I'll figure it out. It may take me a few hours, but, you know, I've got it. i got it under control. I was telling my wife, so I don't want to ask. Why? Because it's humbling. I don't want to stop and ask and admit that I don't know something. Uh, I will say that that particular character defect has largely been squeezed out of me. If I get lost, I quickly ask advice now because in, in traveling internationally, I've gotten so lost that I, I just, I'm not, it doesn't bother me anymore. Uh, when you're in a place and you don't know the language and you don't know where you are, you realize literally you could spend days wandering, so you, you just ask, right? But so often we don't want to ask because it's, it's humbling. Or sometimes we don't want to ask because we know if we ask that person for help or advice, we're going to be punished. We're going to pay a price, right? Okay, uh, so now you need my advice, right? Now you need my help. James says, that's not how God gives. That's not how God gives. God gives generously and without reproach. 
God says, please come and ask. Because I long to give. That's who I am. I'm I'm a God who gives. But sometimes I also don't want to ask advice because I don't want to hear that person's opinion. Because I know what they're going to say already and I don't like it and I don't want to do it. So I don't want to ask, right? Have you ever been in that situation? I don't want to know what you think. I already know what you think, actually. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Because I don't want to do what you want to say. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He goes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. You know, don't, don't lie and steal. Honor your father and mother. He goes, oh, that's awesome. Well, I've kept all those things from my youth. Jesus says, oh, oh, one more thing. Go sell everything you have. Give your possessions to the poor and come follow me. And what does he do? He says he walks away sad. Because that's not what he wanted to hear. Jesus is not saying that if you give away all your possessions, you have eternal life. What Jesus is doing is he's poking and prodding and reaching into that man's divided heart. Because there's a part of him that wants to love and follow God, but there's another part of him that really loves his stuff. And Jesus is exposing that divided heart. He's exposing it. And so James says, when we ask, the way that we receive the wisdom of God is when we ask without condition. Okay? Read with me one more time. Chapter 1, verse 6. But he must ask for wisdom in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded or literally a double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. James says two things. First, ask in faith. Second, ask without doubting. To ask in faith means before I even ask, I trust that God is good. Before I even ask, I know that God can give wisdom. Before I even ask, I have chosen to say whatever God's purposes are, those are best. To ask without doubting means literally to to divide or be divided, to be at variance with oneself. You should write this in the margin because this is a little bit of a, a confusing passage When he says he must ask in faith without any doubting, it's not doubting that God can and answer the question or provide wisdom. It's asking and saying to yourself, after God tells me his opinion, then I'll decide if I want to do it. Okay? It's having a heart that is divided in its will. Notice how he describes it. The one who doubts, the one who is at variance with himself, the one who is divided in himself, He's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he, can re- he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because his soul is split. He is a, a two-souled man, unstable in all his ways. Okay? If, if, you, if you go to God and you ask for wisdom and you say, after God speaks, then I'll decide if I'll obey or not, then God says, I, I can't give you wisdom. If you determine ahead of time, I trust the character of God and all that he says I will do, then God can give you wisdom. It's been said there's one prayer that God always answered, and that is, thy will be done. Thy will be done. God, I know who you are, and I trust who you are, and so whatever you say, I know that it's truth, even if it doesn't feel like truth. And I've determined ahead of time that I'll look through this trial, not pretending it doesn't exist, but I'll look through it, and I'll trust you. Because you gave me Jesus, I know that you are good. And sometimes that's all we have to cling to because we can't make sense of the trial and the tribulation and the suffering. We're not getting reasons for it. But God says, you know, when you respond in joy, I can take it and I can do something really lasting and enduring in your life. 
I can make you whole and complete. Lacking in nothing, I can make you just like me. So, where do we go with this? I was talking to a friend in between the services, and uh, he reminded me of something. There's, there's a, an exercise that he does, and, and I frequently do this. When I'm in the middle of a trial and I'm really struggling, and I'm wrestling with that question, is God good? Then I stop, and I know it sounds simple, but I pull out a piece of paper, and I start to make a list. It's a gratitude list. It's everything I'm thankful for. Because even when I'm in the midst of really hard circumstances, there are so many things that I do have. And I start to write, and I start to write, and I start to write. And as I'm writing, it's a supernatural thing. And it sounds simple, but I'm telling you, that this is so true. has been so true in my life. And I write, and I write, and I write. And pretty soon, God is transforming. I can, I can feel it when it's happening. And he's shifting my mind. And I get to that point where I'm saying, yes, oh yes, and I have Christ. I have life. Oh, I have life itself. You gave me existence. I exist and I will live forever in your presence. Oh, yes. And I have a wife and I have these children. And I have a home and I have friends. And I have my family. And I have all of these wonderful gifts and I'm thankful. And that gratitude moves me to joy. It moves me to the ability to consider even this circumstance as joy because God is shaping character in my life. And I've seen him do it in the past where I went through the hard times and got shaped and he molded and it was hard, it was difficult and he squeezed and I didn't enjoy the process, but I love the end result. I love the end result. And I'm reminded God is trustworthy. And so I want to encourage you today, whether you're going through a trial or not going through a trial, sit down and sketch a list, literally. Get out a piece of paper and begin to write. And as you're writing, I would encourage you literally get on your knees before God and say, God, you have my whole heart. I give you all of my heart. Now, please give me wisdom. Let me see what you see. Because you see all. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who are in the midst of a trial. I pray that they would have courage to give you, give you their entire hearts. I pray, Father, for each and every one of us as we are, in a sense, preparing for the next challenge of living in a broken and fallen world. I pray that we give you our entire hearts, undivided in our loyalties and our allegiance. And I thank you that you will give wisdom. Father, we are thankful for so many things, so many wonderful gifts, but most of all, we are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, removes our debt and gives us life. It's in his powerful, precious, wonderful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Uh, Have a great week and don't forget to become my friend.